0: In this episode of STEMiverse, Marcus and I talk with John Buford. John is a STEM robotics teacher and trainer. He's a science and STEAM specialist in the state of New South Wales in Australia for primary schools. He also facilitates and delivers technology workshops through the Mac ICT Innovation Center at Macquarie University in Sydney. John is also a founder of SciRific, a company that delivers specialist science and robotics training for schools. As you'll see, John has a passion for science and technology and a vast experience in teaching it. He also has a lot of experience outside of teaching and in particular in communications, marketing, electronics, avionics, and as a special effects technician. This is STEMiverse, episode 8. Welcome to STEMiverse, the podcast that helps educators become awesome at teaching STEM, be it at home or in the classroom. I am Peter Dalmaris, and with my co-host, Marcus Sharpie, our mission is to bring you the experiences of educators, students, and stakeholders who strive every day to make the teaching and learning of science, technology, engineering, mathematics, and art better. So, hi, John. I'd like to welcome you to Stemiverse. I'm here with Marcus at the Stemiverse studio. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And we'd like to talk to you about your experience as a STEM robotics uh, teacher and trainer. You know, you've got uh, quite a colorful experience uh, going to things like AliOnix. Uh, I know you are a special effects technician in the past, and uh, I guess a lot of that is spilled into what you do now. So uh, how about you take the next one, two minutes, as much time as you like, to tell us a little bit about your background before you dive into your STEM experiences.
1: Sure. Yeah. Thanks, Peter. Thanks, Marcus. Well, yes, um, I had actually been in the uh, in different industries before I started teaching, and one of my passions was to become a pilot in the air force. And I unfortunately I didn't quite get the, the grades required for the HSC, and so then I fell back on my next subject of interest, which was electronics. And I've always been a bit of a electronics hacker, um, going from even from primary school. I think from the age ten that I got my first electronics kit. I think it was a a Radio Shack 1151 one kit. I think Marcus and Peter will probably remember that. And it's, it's hard to get electronic kits like that these days. They, they look a little bit different. And so I've always been a bit of an electronics enthusiast. And um, and then I took up a trade in electronics. And so I was in, the, in commercial consumer goods, fixing cassette plays and radios and, and DVDs and only just started to come out then, believe it or not. And the, and the TVs and so So what about was that? Uh, that was in about um, 84, I started my apprenticeship in electronics. And so after about two years of doing consumer electronics, because I always had a love for flying, I found an opportunity to transfer my apprenticeship into avionics. And so I started working for an avionics company at Bankston Airport and called Dacel Avionics. And... And it, my my path took a very different course. It wasn't so much about the theory of electronics anymore. It was more about um, installing all of the avionic equipment in aircraft. So I found myself flat my back underneath cockpits and pulling out wires and then in putting in new installations and you know completely working from from nose to tail and on some aircrafts, installing um, new intercom systems and. And so it certainly brought me closer to aircraft and I found myself in the air a lot testing various um, avionics and then also being taken across the country doing some um, servicing or fault finding on avionics and used to go out with a boss and install lots of navigation systems when the old TRACOR navigation systems were popular. And we do some jobs um, off um, all rigging stations and install big navigation systems into some of the big Iroquois helicopters that we're taking workers from the mainland in Darwin across to Troughton Island we did lots of work out there and so I found myself getting a uh, having the enjoyment of working with electronics but also working in the aviation industry and um, and going in aircraft as well and then I tried to get into the Air Force again actually this time was was the army and I thought I'd try to get into um, I had a, a, an intake for Black Hawk helicopter pilots and I got really close I got to the selection board day. And I was about, I think I was about 21 when I got that far. But I found it quite difficult and having a number on my back and having these officers scrutineering what you were doing out in the field. And I think I was a little bit too uncomfortable with the whole proceedings and probably a little bit immature and I didn't get selected. And so after that, I decided to fly hang gliders. And so that's how I, I got into hang, hang gliding and, and then after I think I was in the avionics industry for about four years, and so I learned a lot of skills in in electronics as well and as well as in installations. and then And then I found an opportunity, because at that time I had a love of uh, movie making, and I for some reason, I just just had this instant fascination with making movies and editing, and at about around about the same time, I had an opportunity to go and work for a special effects company for in films in sydney and it's very rare to find any special effects company hiring people uh, that wasn't too far from where i lived and so i went there and he actually wanted somebody had an electronics experience and so the next thing i I was doing i was um i resigned from my avionics business and and next thing i was working for a special effects company doing all sorts of effects for commercials tvs uh, tv shows movies between electronic effects and atmosphere and explosions and rain and and smoke and even um, cosmetics and uh, makeup effects wow. so it was yeah quite a broad quite a broad area in in filmmaking and and so it was just tremendous I had suddenly I had this responsibility of of not just um, fixing things and, and wiring things but actually designing things and so I'm not sure if you remember, but back in the 90s, I think it was. Yeah, I think it was about the early 90s or yeah, around that time, we had Candid Camera Australia. <laughs> yes. and so, yeah, they, they set up these little gags in people's workplaces and played pranks on them. And they needed this, uh, this unit, this little box that they could plug their television equipment into and, and also make this telephone ring as well and then record the audio coming from the telephone. So I actually designed that. And I I was pretty happy to to come up with that on my own. And so I was my boss. And so that was, so I was in the industry there for about two years, but it was very low paying. And so I didn't, it didn't last for me because I needed to earn a bit more money. And so of all things, I went into the, the sales industry. So I ended up spending four years as a financial services consultant. So out of electronics altogether, and it was a sales industry, it was an interesting part of my life. But then I, after that, after sales, I, I didn't want to do that anymore and so I went into communications. And, and so the next 10 years I was in communications and marketing and that's, that's actually where I got the skills to, to tackle a university degree and, and improve my writing ability and, and research. And, and so then I applied to become a teacher uh, applied for uni at the age of about thirty-four, I think it was, and I finally got in and did my four years full-time study at Australian Catholic University, and and then after that stint at uni, I graduated as a um, all subjects primary school teacher because I kind of enjoyed working with that age group, and and for the first three years of working as a primary school teacher, I found it pretty tough because it was about the same <laughs> time that. My first child or my only child was, was, was born at that time and, and so being a, a new dad and a new teacher at a pretty big school, it was very, very challenging both physically and emotionally to cope with everything that, that's happening in schools and so after about three years, I decided to specialise because I've always liked science and, and I've, I've liked technology and, and that, that's when I was introduced to Lego Robotics. So it was actually my my fourth year of uni, I was asked to take part in a robotics pilot to see how effective it was in schools. I think that was back in 2006. And so little did I know that that little stint where I was still at uni and, and assisting other teachers to implement Lego robotics as a, um, a teaching resource, that was going to have a huge impact on my teaching life and vocation. Because who would have thought that would have now led me to focusing more in that area. So that's how how I actually got, got into robotics and how it became more of a specialty after doing about three years full time.
0: I really like the diversity in your background, and I'm sure it comes out as a teacher now. But I just wanted to ask you if in your experience dealing with a lot of teachers uh, in what you do as a trainer, is that something typical? Do you typically find teachers that have such a diverse background?
1: Right. Yeah. Well, no, it's, it's not common for that. Most of my um, uni colleagues were almost half my age. And it was rare, possibly about 10%, if not less, were slightly mature age compared to them. And, and those who were um, a little bit older, a lot of them were, were mums who didn't have a lot of different occupations and vocations. So um, I guess I was unique that I was a male in a primary school area, a primary education area plus having a bit of diversity. So it was, it was unique, not common. And it was really helpful in my teaching because almost any subject I could teach, I could draw upon experiences from variety of those industries. It was tremendous experience.
0: So the diversity in your background also gave you diversity in the kind of subjects that you could tackle and teach. Can you see a connection there?
1: Yeah, definitely. Like one of the areas that I taught when I was in in teaching year six was electronics. And what we did is is I, I linked the electronics topic to aviation because I liked aviation. Pretty much since since starting unit, everything that I needed to do, I linked to an area of interest, which is what I think teachers could do with their students. If they give them an assignment, give them the option then to link the assignment content to an area of interest and they can answer it that way. And that's what I did with my teaching program is I always linked it to an area of interest. So there I was teaching electronics within the context of aviation. And then the, the excursion that I organized was at my old avionics company <laughs> at Bankston Airport. And so they were tickled pink. They felt like it was their way of give, giving back to the community. So they shut down their entire um, avionics um, center there and allowed us to go in and spend a whole day in their service center, in the, in the hangar, and doing talks inside their boardroom. So it was one of my most proudest excursions I ever organized. Awesome. And so um, probably cost the company a few grand of, uh, of lost work because they gave up the day to have us come to their center. They, um, that was part of their way of giving back to the community. So there were lots of examples like that where I linked it back to something that I enjoyed and linked it to you know, my experience at work and, and uh, even in the special effects industry, there are links there as well. So it was extremely valuable, I would say.
0: When you were doing communications, what were you doing back then? Like, was that uh, advertising or...?
1: No, I was working for a um, financial services company. It was Westpac Financial Services. Mm-hmm. And uh, I started there in the customer service section after I finished in sales. Mm-hmm. And and then I went from customer service to marketing where I had a hand in uh, helping the, the communications manager get newsletters out to customers and helping them, my manager write letters to customers and liaising with product managers, whether it's life insurance or investments. And then after I, and that's where I really cut my teeth in, in just communications and, and, and marketing and marketing knowing how to proofread and how to put content together and copy and working with, with mail houses. And after a few years there, I applied for another position at another financial services company where they wanted a communications manager. So, and So moving to that industry and moving to that role, I should say, it um, the onus was on me to to write the content, come up with the working with the the designers, and come up come up with a new newsletter and write content to our you know the customers. So there's nothing like being thrown in the deep end to learn learn a lot of skills very quickly, and so that's what I, that's what I found myself doing. In fact, I think it's a, it's healthy to have a little bit of a little bit of fear around whether you can whether you can do a a, a job or not because (laughs) without a little bit of fear you probably won't work as hard you know if you do a bit too confident you might actually be a little bit too lackadaisical and take it for granted and won't put in as much effort but if you're you've got a little bit of fire under your under your bum then uh, you know i think it's more likely you'll come up with something better
0: (laughs) i think it's like it is good to stress yourself. That's how you know that you're actually growing, right? It's not supposed to be just nice and comfortable, like a walk at the beach. Learning can be hard and can cause stress, but you got to do it.
1: Oh, yes. As a, as a matter of fact, I oh, my I think it was my second year, no, first year of uni, and I discovered for the first time referencing.
0: <laughs> All right. <laughs> yeah.
1: I thought, what the hell is this? I couldn't believe it. It was like, this is so difficult. Are we expected to reference everything we <laughs> we uh, refer to in, some, in 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 our research, and I had not experienced that before, you know in so many years at school and, and in in the workplace. and And anyhow, and so one of the first things we were given to do in at uni was we had to write an essay. And so, where well, they wanted to see where all the students w- were at. Now, back back then, when I started uni, which wasn't that long ago really, I think the UAI to become a primary school teacher was about, oh, it was probably about seventy-five, eighty percent. So it was a decent mark you needed to to get to get into primary education. And so you had a lot of a lot of school leavers uh, that was in the previous year. So a lot of students age eighteen, maybe nineteen, as their first year student at uni all come out of doing lots of assignments, lots of essays. And yet this was my very first formal essay where I was about to be marked since I did my HSC. That would have been, what, about nearly nearly 20 years, maybe 18 years prior. I hadn't been marked on any written work, and I failed I found the, the uh, English subject at HSC. It was my lowest subject out of all the subjects in the HSC. And I bombed out big time. And was, It was one of my worst subjects all the way through school. And so uh, I, I couldn't really write an essay to save my life. And so I'd just done all this work in the communication industry and done a lot of hard work and being pushed and dragged, kicking, screaming for my old bosses. And so I, I felt like I was a better writer now, but I had never been put to the test from a formal you know, lecturer or someone who's about to mark my written work. So there are about 100 or so uni students writing this essay and were given a choice of what, what to write about. And, and I rather enjoyed the process. I got right into it. I wrote it like I was writing an article for one of the, the newsletters for, of in, within the financial services industry. I just wrote it like it was a work, work job. And over the next few weeks, we were called in one at a time to uh, to, you know, to see the lecturer and to discuss you know, areas of strengths, are, areas of weaknesses, what we can work on, etc. And so my name got called up and I went in to see the lecturer and she asked me for my name and I told her and she said, oh, right, um, you're John Burford. And I said, yeah. I said, why? She goes, well, you've got the highest mark.
0: <laughs> oh, good work.
1: <laughs> and I've gone, wow. I almost, almost, um, I'm pretty sure I teed up or at least got a little bit, you know, swelled up, swelled up in the eyes. And I could not believe it. You know, all these people that used to always get good marks in English and I used to always fail. And so it just showed being in the workforce getting the, the workplace skills of writing or anything that you need in workplace skills. As a mature person, as an adult, you're, you are more likely to pick up those skills. So it doesn't mean that you, if you fail a subject at school, it doesn't mean that you're going to always be no good at it. And so uh, I suddenly realized that you know I had the ability to, ability to write and and it certainly got me through uni and I did quite well at uni and put a lot of effort. That's the other thing too, I think that the advantage of being a mature age student is that you're doing the, the subjects not because it's just a means to an end, but because you actually enjoy each subject and you get a lot out of it. And so you actually... It was your choice. Yeah, it, it's your choice and and you see meaning behind the subjects. And I, I used to get myself right behind them and as best I could, I'd always link it to some some area of interest. So I would be mo- motivated to, you know, to d- dig up the readings and get it done. But union was essentially a, an initiation process you can never get through all the readings and that's what I think essentially what achieving a degree is 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 is, is half of the quali- part of the qualification is showing that you've mastered something that's very stressful that you don't have a lot of you don't have enough time to complete but you do it as best you can and that's kind of a bit of a metaphor in life really you're never given quite enough time to do things.
0: That's one of the great lessons of Attending university, it's it's an environment where you have to pressure yourself. It's the schedules, Mm -hmm. it's the volume of subjects you've got to do. It's the environment like teachers or lecturers you don't like or people that you have to work with and still get the job done. And uh, I think stressing yourself is is a lot of, um, it's a big part of being at university. Uh, But I just wanted to point out that the way that you described your experience in English, writing in English, from being, I suppose, at the bottom of the class at school and then top of the class in university. And what happened in the middle, in between, was your experience on the job, actually writing in the industry. So learning by doing, I suppose that was the key for you in just bringing what was very hard for you into something that, not that it comes naturally, but something that you're now very good at.
1: Yes you're right it it's um it and as you said, it, it wasn't easy. Uh, you go through a lot of pain There's, i don't can't think of any example where you can make significant change without pain it's uh, it's almost comes hand in hand and and there were times that I hated my boss because he was so so critical of me and but I'd be spending you know my journeys on the train just trying to to Rewrite things better, and and I remember writing articles, and I I'd find a, a section in my article that I wouldn't be completely happy with, but I couldn't quite work out how to say it. And sure enough, as soon as I showed my boss, he the first thing he'd see is that little like that paragraph, and he just smashed me with it. <laughs> and you know, and I I realised then that that um, as you get better at writing, you can pick up things a lot quicker too. And one of the bosses I worked for when I did go to a school, and she was um, she a was, known, she was a, known, uh, she was a very, very tough very tough principal and she um, was difficult to please. And so you had to be uh, on your game the entire time to get credit from her. And one of the first things she said when I wrote something for her, she turned around and said, oh, you, you, you write well. And it was very hard to get any compliments from her, and so you know, it just getting that that reassurance and getting reminded about that, it just shows you know, the 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 length or the extent that I had changed in terms of my writing ability, but it didn't come without pain, and that's exactly. unfortunate. My son is is a lazy and reluctant reader slash writer, and unfortunately. He's, at, he's ten now. Unfortunately, he's going to learn the hard way, yes. and he may be just like me. He may go through the entire school and fail English, and he has to realize at one point he has to go through a lot of pain before he can change.
0: <laughs> I really, I don't think they're sending this way. They have
1: to go through those motions,
0: just like you did. Yeah,
1: yeah. Well. yeah. I have to remember that. <laughs> so,
0: would you like to switch to the present now? So, we spent a bit of time talking about your past and what brought you here mm-hmm. but let's uh, have a look at what you do now which is uh, specifically stem robotics i think that's the biggest part of your life right now isn't it professionally at least
1: yeah so, so i found my way at macquarie ict center uh, because i had done a lot of work around lego robotics and how that started was I began teaching part-time at a another school where the principal allowed me to develop programs, not just uh, with set classes, but gifted and talented programs around robotics. And Lego Robotics was was very new about 10 years ago in the schools and, and I was one of the few people that had some experience with it. And I, I actually contacted one of the suppliers, who was running a, a workshop on it? So, I wanted to attend that workshop to upskill myself. And then they they wrote back and said, "Oh, I'm sorry, but the um, facilitator has resigned, and we don't have a facilitator, so we have to cancel the workshop." But from that conversation, they said, "Would you like to work for us as well?" <laughs> so, um, so I found myself getting skilled and, and upskilled very quickly. And so I was doing some training for them for any schools that bought the equipment. Who was that? And so I. That was more educational.
0: More educational, okay.
1: And it was Lego Robotics, right? Yeah, more educational. That you're playing with yes, that's what, 2006. they more educational, sold just Lego. And they were one of the first suppliers of um, you know, Lego. At, at the time, it was the NXT had just come out. And I don't think even Lego WeDo was out then at that time.
0: Uh, John, for the benefit of our listeners, could you tell us a little bit about Lego NXT, uh, for somebody who has never heard of this technology before?
1: Okay, so Lego brought out its first robotic, educational robotics platform with the RCX. That was around about, I think, and maybe four, two 2005 in Australia. And that was one of the first of its kind, a programmable brick that you can use uh, Lego pieces, but it had uh, Lego motion sensor. Well, oh, it actually didn't have that. No, maybe it had a, a color sensor, or light sensor, and it had some motors and it had a brick that you can program. Um, it was like a, a, a click or drag and drop system. It was a little bit difficult to program. You had to wire all the blocks together. And then after a few years of so, the Sorry, Jeff, it,
0: so it was a, program, a graphical programming language that people would use on their computer and then send the instructions to the brick and the brick then will behave accordingly. So it's not. It's a programming language for young programmers, I suppose. Or
1: yeah, yeah. There was. It was um, most of it was picture blocks, and they would transmit the data through. Um, I think it was through an infrared tower. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so they had a tower connected to their their laptop, and, and and then they had an infrared receiver on the actual brick, and so it would. Um, it would uh, download the you know the program that way and occasionally the firm new firmware had to had to be updated so it would take several minutes for that and so and some high schools were using it as well but i think they they programmed with robot c at the time too and then the NXT came out and that NXT stood for the the next thing which was um, a similar looking brick but it had more power and you could download it through the USB cable. And also it had Bluetooth as well. You could, you could um, link it to another brick uh, using Bluetooth or you could link it to your own computer through Bluetooth. And so you had a little bit more functionality with the NXT system. And um, that was around for several years and I think it was around about 2013 when the uh, EV3 uh, came, came out and the EV3 is the third evolution of, of, its, of its kind, hence why it's called EV3. And that, again, was another big step up with its power and, and its um, memory capabilities. And both the NXT and the EV3 had a lot more data logging opportunities, particularly the EV3 now, which is an area that I think in schools don't really use and don't, um, don't really take advantage of that, that area of data logging which is a really exciting area of robotics. So why is data logging exciting? Well, you can, you can go out in the field and, and take data using the various sensors that you have in the kit, and then you can you upload that, that data onto the screen and, and see it presented present as a graph. And so it's got lots of, it's lots of benefits in schools because you, know, you, can, you have students predict what the, the, the data might look like and then once the data is is up online, then you can even analyse the data and and look back and see where where this data what what this data reflected and and why, and then you can, you can compare data with um, other scenarios. Some people really get into it; you know, other people find it a bit hard. So great for science, I suppose. Like
0: science is a lot about collecting data and then analysing it, like going past the robotics part of what EV3 is, All right? So. Can you connect, for example, temperature humidity sensors sensors of that kind to your ev three block and then record the data of it and then do science with it?
1: Yeah, yeah, you could do lots of um, those experiments. I think there are I think Lego also do I think science um, have these science packages where you, you can conduct these science experiments, and a lot of it's to do with with data. And I think there are these modules that you can buy in addition to the EV3 system that can support you with those experiments. And I think um, one of those would include a a uh, temperature sensor. I know that I've actually just done some basic temperature gathering of of, um, of data when it comes to, you know, seeing how effective insulation is or eskies are when you're you know, measuring the temperature of, the, of a cold can of drink, you know. And it's probably not so much about robotics, but it is about science and data collection and following, following the scientific method, so forth. Yeah. And so um, getting towards, I think, what you're asking about STEM, so having that experience with Lego Robotics got me into the, the role at Macquarie Uni ICT Centre, where they were working with students and teachers in de- developing and their capacity to be um, to integrate um, ITC into the classroom, and robotics initially was a big part of that, but then it, it started to become a lot broader than just robotics. You know, there was also game design, and you know there was also um, looking at augmented reality, and and then we had um, the maker movement started coming in as well, and so and then there was work around. Uh, developing workshops for of storytelling and mathematics using ICT and so the roles of a uh, Macquarie ICT innovation uh, facilitator became quite varied it wasn't just robotics and so and it was around about that time then stem became became a bit of a buzzword in the industry and became a very popular uh, concept in primary school although it's been in high school for a number of years and so it just started to knock on the primary school doors and suddenly all, all the schools want a lot of schools wanted to know what is this stem all about and so we found that conveniently robotics fitted nicely in stem but i think i think a lot of people jumped on the bandwagon and started calling everything stem
0: yeah okay what what's uh what's stem <laughs> um in the way that you're approach it and as a trainer uh, uh, explain it to teachers that are getting in it now?
1: Well, you know, I, I attended a workshop just recently on STEM and because STEM was such a new thing and it was hard to find any any teachers who had any skills in STEM and, and even rarer to find any, any facilitators who can teach them. And so I attended one of these workshops and I was a bit disappointed that it was the definition of STEM was still a bit vague. And I think the definition of STEM is evolving personally. I, I think that the role of a teacher in science, technology, engineering, and maths, and if you incorporate the maybe the more modern term of STEAM, which includes the arts, not just creative arts, but also maybe the humanities as well, uh, there's a, a, a growing contingent of educators who feel that if anything is worth making, it has to be equitable and and fair and just. So that's why they feel you know, it's better to refer to it as STEAM rather than STEM. But you got different schools of thought around that. Some people just will prefer you call it called STEM, and others accept the STEAM uh, acronym. So for educators, I think the a STEM or STEAM facilitator has very various um, scenarios and definitions. It could be a classroom teacher who's asked to integrate some of their units of work and so that they're covering more than just one or two key learning areas or subject areas. But it could also be a specialist like myself who goes in there one day a week and looks at what the, um, the classroom teacher is doing, say, around science or history and develops a, uh, a unit of work Based on say an hour a week, an hour uh, an hour each week with a class, where they're actually making something. So I think the definition of of a STEM teacher fundamentally has to be they make something useful, and ideally link it back to what is the um, the science or history component of that term, so that it's it's uh, enhances what they're learning in class. It's not just a standalone subject that has no connection to what they're doing in class, it ideally would be something that they link back in their class.
0: So on the same topic, I wonder in your experience as you see it in schools, is STEM about a particular methodology or about a particular selection of so-called subjects or learning by doing or perhaps all of that together? What have you seen in schools?
1: Yeah, I think there's some work needs to be done there. It's, it's still a bit ambiguous how schools and principals take that role on and how they see that. Uh, I think, I personally feel that, that for one thing, they have to make something, whether it's a physical thing that they're making through use of um, tools and technology or they're making a digital uh, video or the digital animation. Um, they have to create something and so and so the the contents subject areas need to relate back to what they're doing in class time mm-hmm. um, it's it's very easy for teachers to to rebadge a design and make task from a science and tech unit as a stem unit and i think a, a lot of the um, design and make units of work from science and tech subjects have been rebadged as stem and is so, that okay I was going to just ask myself. That. I mean, is that okay? Is it okay to rebadge design and make tasks? Well, it it probably a lot of the subjects probably are okay, but I think, you know, I think perhaps a lot of the design and make tasks weren't that weren't always that good. Mm-hmm. So, having a STEM facilitator, you have a a chance that at, um like you have a a second bite at, at the apple or the cherry or whatever the phrase is. You have a, se- a second go at it. So, whatever, they, whatever they're whatever they doing in science should not necessarily be replaced by the STEM teacher. The STEM teacher ideally would be enhancing it. So, they would work off what they're doing in, in the science lessons and then add on another, you know, creating task. Yeah. So,
0: what does the STEM facilitator bring that the teacher doesn't have? Say a science
1: teacher. Whatever. Yeah, well, I guess um, I guess the classroom teacher only has – they're responsible for teaching all the subjects. And so um, without coming up with an integrated unit of work, if they're just working on teaching all subjects, they just may not have enough time in the week to devote a, a design and make task uh, around using technology, whether it's creating a physical item and, and it may even overlap in other outcomes that don't fit under science and tech. So that's the other advantage too is with a, a STEM specialist is that they can bring in other outcomes that, that fit nicely into whatever they're creating. And So um, some of it will overlap with science and some of it might be in other areas. And So some schools rather like, if they can afford it, if they can afford to put another staff member on the books, then... You know the classroom teachers can focus on what they need to do with all subjects, you know. While the STEM teacher, um, you know, can really you know, unpack what the skills are, what the tech, what the technologies that they're going to learn to actually go and make something. Now, now there's the other funding issue for schools: is will schools employ a STEM specialist as a an RFF teacher? In other words. It, it gives the classroom teacher a release from face-to-face face, so they go off and do their admin while while the, um, that hour is given to the STEM teacher to develop the, uh, a unit of work. Or does the school have enough uh, funds to, to um, have that teacher sit in with the STEM teacher so they can uh, co-teach and learn some of the skills that the STEM teacher is bringing so they can have the skills to carry um, – maybe that work on with the school if the STEM teacher left. So it's um, a lot of it to do with the the budget and the funding for schools, whether it becomes just a classroom teacher job where they have to integrate units of work together or it becomes an RFF position for a STEM teacher to come in and, and relieve that, that classroom teacher for an hour while they kind of focus a bit more on you know, the, the, uh, the, the tools and the making of things or do they have the funding to co-teach with the classroom teacher? So there's different different levels and different ways that STEM teacher can uh, can be utilised.
0: What does an ideal STEM teacher look like? Just to qualify that, imagine that you have unlimited powers. Perhaps you are the How Minister of Education, right, and you've got a total All the money, total control. <laughs> and you say, I'm going to... I'm going to make it so that every single school in Australia has got a dedicated STEM teacher. How would you empower that teacher to do STEM?
1: Well, let's have a look. Um, No pressure. If you had a very well-resourced facility like that, I think um, how it it would look, well, for a start, you would have um, a room where you have access to a whole range of of tools and technology, you know, whether it's hand tools to electronic testing equipment to um, different forms of robotic robotics, but also a lot of electronic components. So there's... So a makerspace? Ma- makerspace to developing... Well, a makerspace can be very portable too. So it's like a classroom that has um, very portable uh, components. Like I have a, a trolley, for example, that has a lot of electronic components in all the different... Tubs, and then you've got another trolley that has all of the um, robotics equipment and different tubs, and so, uh, and then you've got a storeroom that's filled with recycled materials, whether it's tube cardboard tubes to cardboard boxes, shoe boxes, and so you would have a, a STEM room should have a collection of uh, a collection of recycled materials, and ideally things like tubes, boxes, and. Uh, and And then you'd have the electronic components, and then you have uh, some robotics equipment. and so you can convert your space to being either a robotic session or and an ideally well equipped uh, school um, room that has not just um, iPads or tablets, but you for some things you need to have laptops. And so ideally, you know we found find ourselves sometimes caught without having the right um, you know technology for the students it's uh some some software can only be can only work very can only work well on a laptop and some on an iPad so you would have both a lot of students particularly younger age ages don't have a lot of experience operating a mouse or even <laughs> copying and pasting Just files from screen. one location to another
0: so that that would be the technology um what about the methodology of the teacher um like how would um uh, it's like a 45 minute session of a stem teacher look like with 10 or 15 students in the class
1: yeah well like for example um i did a, a lesson last week with year one and we're looking at light now the outcomes for a year one student on light is you know, is looking at uh, things such as light travels in straight lines. Light is, is heat, uh, that kind of thing. And what we're developing in STEM is they'll be making a solar oven. And so, you know, we we did a couple of experiments, and we had about an hour. I think forty-five minutes is probably too short. I, ideally, I think you need about an hour to be effective with STEM. And so, a lot of it is is inquiry based. I think that's important to be inquiry based with with the teaching and you are you know, directing children to ask the, you know, we, you're trying to direct them to ask the, the questions themselves. And if they can't ask the questions then they need to, you know, they need to begin to, um, you guide them, you guide them by asking them key questions rather than telling, telling them the answers about things. And so we had uh, a little mini experiment set up where we had uh, a, a chocolate Easter egg. And we cut it up so that you can put the flat side down on, on the surface. So we had a black piece of paper and then we had a white piece of paper and then, then we had a silver, silver piece of foil. And then we had another piece um, inside of a tin with the plastic over the top. And so we're, we're looking at, we're trying to get them to consider, you know, if they're out in the sun the same amount of time, what are we observing? I and mean, what are you feeling? What can you see from your senses? and so really getting them to think you know from an inquiry perspective getting them to become like mini scientists and mini engineers and trying to ask those questions why and so i think in order to get the learning a stem teacher needs to needs needs to get the kids to be to experience it through, through emotions it needs to be an emotional experience before they can actually get that learning to sink in and how do you do that hmm. Wow! Yeah? Well, yeah, I mean, it, it needs to. Is that where fun comes in? It needs to connect with them. You know, it needs to really connect with them, and a lot of it's just storytelling as well. Really getting like facilitated, getting excited, and drawing on stories, and and a lot of children love to hear stories. And sometimes a facilit- good facilitator can embellish those stories a bit <laughs> for a dramatic inf- impact. And, and they, they, especially the younger ch- children, they, they love hearing it. And, but if they can feel, see and feel and sometimes smell what's going on around them, then that, they start to build this picture. Anyhow. Um, Experience. And, so, and, and once they, and the other good thing is it started to build their the vocabulary around what I'm leading them towards. So I want them to get an idea on okay, dark colors absorb light. I want them to get an idea that brighter colors reflect light. I want them to get an idea that there's something that happens when you cover it with plastic. And so they're still got, they're building some idea of what's going on and they've got some uncertainties. And and then we go in and we start looking at how we might be able to build a solar oven. And then we look at a couple of images of solar ovens. Then we make connections with what we've just done in outside with our experiments to what we're seeing made and what the importance of that is. And then we start talking about, well, what can they bring from home that can, you know, where they can start making that. And, and, and they get pretty excited. They think, Oh wow, can we make more than one? And so, you know, of course they, well, if you you work really hard and, and so when they're very young, often, often they work together on things in pairs. And so, um, That gives them both a chance to collaborate and bounce ideas off each other. And the other thing too, from a methodology uh, point of view, with STEM, I believe we need, facilitators need to encourage children to solve problems themselves or amongst each other. And that's what I do with my robotics workshops because I find half of the benefit of the robotics workshop is not so much learning the content but it's actually empowering them to, to solve problems and be creative. And so, one of my catchphrases in my workshops is C3 before me. And I find that so, mm. so useful because it really puts it back on them to think about the, the issue the, themselves before they come and see me because it's so easy for them to put hand up. So, could you say that one again? See. It's called C3 before me, which means C3 other students before they see an adult. Oh, okay. C3 nice. before me, is that's what, what, that's what would be my standard line. If, if any student comes to see me about anything, like whether it's like where does this plug go into or where do I find the off switch? I'll just say C three before me. And they pretty quickly all the students realise they just can't they just can't put their hand up and then get a really really cop out answer. I'm
0: putting that on my door at work. Yes. That's <laughs> a good one.
1: <laughs> yeah, they they have to think about it. And and then the next the next bit is 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 not so much asking somebody just willy nilly, but coming up with what question to ask. So a good facilitator needs to Encourage students to learn through inquiry, then encourage students to uh, solve minor questions amongst themselves and with others, and they have this sense of of you know they have efficacy, self efficacy, of being able to do the research and get it done.
0: That's amazing. I think uh, what you just described in the last few minutes for me covers this the essence of what stem is really about especially when you compare with other traditional subjects so what you said about stem is like training children to think and act like scientists and engineers and in that is uh, the importance of asking the right questions uh, and also to collaborate with others so ask three before you see me that's that's what scientists do, right? Um, I think that's what the essence is, don't you think, Uh, compared to other traditional subjects where it's more about learning things in a more stale way where it's not hands-on, you're not experiencing the joy of solving a problem yourself and combining knowledge comes from those different disciplines. Is that the essence of STEM?
1: Yeah, I believe it is, and, and definitely there's a it's a bigger component in the engineering side too. I think you know to answer one of your questions before, how is it different to design and make tasks with um, science and tech units? There's probably probably a a larger focus on engineering and mathematics. You know, so uh, that's important. You know, so I think um, the risk of just rebadging design and make tasks is that you lose a lot of the engineering and mathematics side. Just them. And so you know, every every now and again, when you're developing a STEM unit, it's it's worth considering. You know, how can we make this an engineering task and a math task? You can't always do it. You know, sometimes creating STEM units when you're working with schools, you've only got a history uh, content to leverage from, and so it, it makes it very difficult. To um, sometimes it can only be um, like like a a, a scratch junior. Program where they're developing a a, a story about r- uh, rights and roles in, in the classroom, and so there's not a lot a lot of engineering in that, so you know, so to speak. So you know, uh, so some some STEM units are a little bit more challenging to to develop from within a class content area than others because typically schools they alternate every term, you know, it might be a science focus and the next term it might be a history focus and they can sometimes alternate that way. So whereas a STEM teacher is employed usually for the whole year. Um, so, and I think I think how a STEM teacher is defined and what is a great STEM teacher, I think that's still evolving as schools are getting used to how to employ STEM teachers and how best to engage their current staff with a STEM teacher or, you know, retrain existing staff into that role. I, th- I think it's there's change happening around STEM facilitators. So, you know, in 12 months' time, it could be quite different.
0: Great. Thanks for that, John. So looking at the time, we are now ready to get into a few rapid question okay. and answers. <laughs> so that means that we are going to try and keep our questions very short. You can take your time, of course, to answer mm-hmm. them. So, uh, but the very specific things. So let's start with the first one. Uh, is there a person, uh, whether you know them personally or somebody's, somebody who wrote a book that you read and, uh, and uh, shaped the way that you teach? So is there a person that has been mostly influential in the way that you
1: teach Hmm. The way that I teach. Well, I used to, I still am a big believer in, in human development and, um, positive psychology. And one of the, the people that's been very influential for me as a person that has been this gentleman, his name is Skip Ross. And he wrote this book called say yes to your potential. And from time to time, I listened to a lot of his words and, and in in doing lego robotics workshops or even just in, in in most subjects in general you can always tap into this um this field of of human endeavor and and psychology and uh because if you can touch if you can reach somebody and, and they for for a brief moment they see you and you see them as being one student in the class and and they recognize you and and they see that you take notice of them. It means the world, world to them. And when you've got class sizes between twenty and thirty odd in a class, and it's easily for people to get missed. And so, having a belief in in psychology and, and um, human achievement and human development, uh, they have been the most influential people in my life. Uh, whether it's people like Skip Rice or whether it's um, uh, Martin Seligman from Positive Psychology and you know, there's a, uh, Stephen Covey from Seven Habits of Highly Effective People I mean, all of those people have been influential to me
0: What advice would you give new educators who are getting prepared to start teaching STEM?
1: So, yeah, new educators start teaching STEM, I think um, they need to get a, a, a basic handle on electronic theory I think it would be useful for them to to understand electronics,
0: how would they do that?
1: Well, yeah, it's a good. Good point because um, it seems to be uh, seems to be difficult just to get um, some basic theory. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I'm I'm very lucky that I've actually got a trade in electronics. Not many teachers have a trade in le- electronics. Ele- electronics is. Having a, a, an understanding of electronics is like you've got superpowers. You know, uh, <laughs> it's not um, something you can easily get. It's, it's like somebody basic who
0: can, electronics new to me.
1: Yeah, well, it's like someone who can speak another language. It's not something you can just uh, overnight just get, get done. It takes years sometimes. So I don't know. I don't, I don't know how they can get prepared for that. Is there a um, book you'd recommend? No, I, I would probably start looking at... Um, just looking at an, uh, an electronics kit, maybe. You okay. know, one of those yeah. or 20 one or kits. 15 in yeah. and, one and start looking at some of the resources that children might start looking at as a way, as a starting point. I know they have, um, I know Little Bits, um, the technology that Little Bits have brought brought to schools are great for allowing children to be, to quickly prototype in creative ways using electronic components. So but what are Little Bits? Yeah, uh, little bits. You know, the little bits components has has been great for for students to quickly prototype creative solutions. Well, using what are little bits? What are little bits? Well, little bits, uh, little modules that um, that electronic modules that that click together, and they use magnetic technology so that the how they are how they do click together is uh, is in the right polarity. So it's a very clever system, and they've been out for a few years now and you can get almost anything on on a little bit module these days. And uh, a lot of STEM classes have little bits, and I think there are other products out there that that are similar to little bits as well, and and there are snap circuits. So, John,
0: would you say that just in the question of how a young STEM teacher or older STEM teacher can train in electronics, I suppose the answer is just train like a child, right? Um, look at what kids today do to learn electronics. There's little bits, as you said, there's Arduino kits that are specifically mm-hmm. designed for young kids. There's M-boards. Oh, so just pick one of those resources and uh, self-learn, which is one of the yeah. cornerstones, I suppose, of mm-hmm. education, the ability to learn yourself.
1: Um, yeah, I, I, I got part of that question. I, I think you were saying um, about... Uh, to get the training, then sometimes it's it's good just to follow the same path that students will follow. Exactly. Uh, yeah, whether it's um, like snap circuits or even through um, you know creating paper circuits, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. and maybe maybe teachers can also get some PD. I think there's some work around developing teachers' um, skills around electronics, and that seems to be a good base. Because after that, there's just ways of um, linking, you know, ITC into the curriculum and having a good handle on, you know, social media and digital technologies and and what apps to use on iPads and and programming and getting familiar with, you know, how to code using graphical blocks um, and then leading towards if you're high school trained and looking at more alphanumeric programming. So. I think if you, if you looked at, at STEM and looked at the skill areas, I think there are about three or four. There's electronics and then there's coding and and then there's um, some robotics and then the other field might be um, movie making or augmented reality or, um, you know, that kind of thing. So um, I think like they're the different pillars of STEM uh, and then from that like if I if I think back to the STEM units that we've I've done the last few years, it's been like for example making a periscope uh, to um, enhance um, a unit on light, where they get to they get to make a practical thing that uses the ideas of reflection um, in creating a periscope. Another idea is the solar oven. Another idea is the making a marble run or a marble maze, where they look at um, cause and effect and and inertia and and, and Angles too and, and Gravity and um, and then also developing a, a scratch game on on uh, supporting the, your knowledge on, on Australia and making a game where they can answer questions around native animals or flora and fauna uh, to um, having a family album that's linked to an Erasma app so that uh, they can bring their, their photos to life um, by scanning, you know, the pages and, you know, through Erasmo to bring video and, and pictures. Uh, and trying to think of other ones that we've done in the past. But you can see from that. That's good examples.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, so... Uh, Based on that, and still on the topic of uh, professional development, uh, do you have any professional development, uh, could be seminars, it could be workshops uh, or conferences around Australia that you would recommend that STEM teachers uh, attend or follow?
1: Uh, Well, the the STEM conferences, um, they've only just started to to happen. Uh, And previous to this, particularly STEM conferences, you know, there were... Um, there was future learning conferences and, uh, you know, there was just recently a STEM conference in the Novotel. uh, Is that a regular conference that happens at a particular place? Yeah, well, it might be regular. I mean, it probably only just started in the last couple of years. Okay, we'll look it up. So it's called STEM, a STEM conference, is it? Yeah, I think there was, um, I think it was just called a STEM, yeah, I think it was, oh, what was it called? Um it was a STEM conference that was I think it was last month at the Novotel and it probably it may have had another name but you know the word STEM was you know um, very prominent mm. yeah. yeah so it was that uh, yeah and you know I think the uh, New South Wales um, the you uh, no I'm trying to think of the oh gosh <laughs> I should have written this one down um, the Science Teachers Association of mm-hmm. New South Wales, yeah. Stan's you know, they sometimes um, release workshops where they invite people to, to talk about science and techy stuff. So I'd, I'd check out the Stan website, science, mm-hmm. Techn- yeah. science Teachers Association of New South Wales, and then the um, Australian Science Teachers Association as well uh, is another one to look at. Um, one of, the, one of the, the great opportunities I was given from them. Was uh, to be one of the the only primary school teachers selected in New South Wales to travel to Japan, mm-hmm. and yeah, and that was a, a few years ago, and that was awesome to spend a week in Japan, and we were teaching science and tech to um, Japanese students, and and we sat in on a few of their lessons as well. Believe it or not, they they are not as as well equipped in their schools as we are. We are far more equipped with technology than than most of the Japanese schools you wouldn't think so you'd think it'd be a lot the other way around and they have some some certainly have some flagship schools where there's lots of technology in there but it's 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 actually fewer than what they have here in our our schools. so uh, and that was through the Australian Science Teachers Association
0: have you had experiences from other uh, countries as well in a way that you would give you um, uh, an understanding of uh, Australia versus uh, the world and how we are doing in STEM teaching?
1: I think Boston is like the mecca of not just robotics, but I think it could be even STEM. So uh, I, th- I think you've got Tufts University there and you've got um, MIT in Boston, you know, I think that would be. I think if people wanted to really, you know, look at you know where can they go overseas, you can even do a placement for six months um, at Tufts University and and be part of an outreach program where you actually put a lot of these skills into practice. Uh, they are tremendous, and and they do work a lot a lot of work with Lego Education as well. But I think with their association with MIT and the fact that. There's so many innovative companies coming out of Boston. You know, that would be like, yeah, you know, that is you know, like uh, you know, the, the road to glory is is if you wanted to spend time in that area. So, yeah, um, that's the epicenter. Great teaching. It is, yes. Yeah, yeah right. sure. Do we
0: have any equivalent in Australia?
1: Of that? Well, geez, do we? Um, hmm. Uh do we have any equivalent? I mean, I'd like to say that the Mac ICT was pretty good. <laughs> you know, they, they um, tried to do a lot in that area. Uh, the, F- the Futures Learning Centre is, will get there as well, I think, at, at the at Technology Park in Redfern. Uh, so we are starting. I think starting. University of Queensland is doing some some good things out of Brisbane there. And, and I know that Damien Key is doing a lot of work from that area. He seems to be one of the... Prominent educators in that field, and and also Rob Turok in in Tasmania, some really good educate, educators in that field of robotics and STEM, uh, in, in in that in that part of Australia too. Uh, other than that, do we have another centre like Tufts University? I don't think so. I think there's nothing comes close to what can come out of Boston. So something to like aim
0: for.
1: Yeah, something to aim for. you have got the time, you have got the money, and and there are opportunities there and, and uh, it, it might be just you know, contacting a few key people and and seeing what you can be part of. Great. Awesome. Thank you, John. Yeah. So uh, mm.
0: uh, just uh, we just hit the one hour mark, so uh, there's, there's, we had a lot more questions to ask you in particular about ev three. so we may need to have you back. Definitely. Almost 10 of <laughs> but for now... Um, if our listeners would like to get in touch with you, what's the best way to do that?
1: Oh, well, they can send me a, an email at, at johnburford at gmail.com. Um, I do have a website, cyrific.com.au. That's, you know, S-C-I-R-I-F-F-I-C.com.au. And you can also email me through, through, through there. But uh, the best way is, is my Gmail account, just my name, one word. Give Cyrific a decent plug. <laughs> On, yeah, scientific. well, well Cyrific, yeah, just um to wrap up there, I started SciRific about I think six years ago when I thought this is this is the area I want to specialise in. And so I, I um it's basically doing science and robotics workshops and and I also uh, train teachers. It's like a it's a website that gives information about how I can um, support teachers in their learning around, particularly around robotics technology. Uh, and and also I run workshops for students, uh, mainly during the holidays. And and there's examples there in my, in my gallery about some workshops that we've done for primary schools and the high schools. And so uh, so yeah, so that's a, that's a, a business I have on the side. I, I'm employed right now as a STEM teacher across four different primary schools, three of which are in the Catholic system, and one is in the uh, with the Department of Education. And so I'm a STEM teacher two days a week at a public school in Camarane and a a one-day-a-week STEM teacher at a Catholic school in Belfield, another one-day-a-week STEM teacher at a Catholic school in Austral, and a one-day fortnight at a Catholic school in Cabramatta. So I'm employed four and a half days a week uh, in STEM capacity across four schools. And so there's little time for me to do a lot of scientific stuff, but there is one, one day a fortnight where I, I do uh, the odd job with um, schools directly in, in teacher training or in student workshops and that's that's terrific
0: <laughs> terrific awesome. thanks for joining us John I appreciate it
1: yeah thank you <laughs> you're welcome it was a pleasure thank you so much for having me on on board and it was always nice to tell my story Great. we'll talk some more very soon <laughs> okay
0: that's all for this episode if you have any questions or suggestions please send them to our email address questions at stemiverse.com and we'd be happy to answer them do you want us to interview someone in particular let us know visit us at stemiverse.com to get the show notes of every episode and subscribe on iTunes by searching for the name of our podcast stemiverse that is s-t-e-m-i-v m-i-v E-R-S-E Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.